It's Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 17. We are actually, the way that most... Uh, way that most people, commentators, whatever you, however way you want to look at it, um, the way that they divide this text out, uh, this will be the last verse in Paul's explanation of who we are. And the reason that Romans chapter 8 is called the culmination of Romans, or the peak of Romans, however you want to think about it, is because he covers every aspect of our salvation. He covers every... He, he doesn't leave any part of our salvation without covering it in this specific text. We saw Romans 8, 1 through... Basically 1 through 11 was about our justification, how that happens, and that because of our justification, in verse number 11 he said, because we are justified and because we have that same spirit that he will raise our mortal bodies or quicken our mortal bodies by his spirit. So we have, because of our justification, we have the promise of our glorification. In verses number 12 through verse number 17, he's talking about because of our justification, we will have our sanctification. And in verse number 17, where we're at tonight, he shows why our sanctification will lead to glorification. So he's putting together... His, his, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you would say his argument, but his explanation of why our salvation all fits together. Even though we don't see every aspect of it in our life. We don't see the things that led up necessarily to our justification. We don't see how all that worked in our past necessarily. We can see little aspects of it, but we don't see the whole picture of it. And that's why he spends time in the beginning of Romans chapter 8. And we see parts of our sanctification in our life. And that's why he's spending this time in this middle of the chapter. And he will move on to explain the anticipation of our glorification. And why all of what he has said, our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification are all going to create in us a ability to be what he says more than conquerors. So, verse number 17, the Bible says... And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And we know from this text, he said, and if children, ties us right back into last week, where we read that we've been given that spirit of adoption. So he's still carrying on the idea of the spirit of adoption. He said the spirit bears witness that we were adopted and that because of the spirit bearing witness in us with our spirit, we are the children of God. And then again, he begins in verse number 7, he says, and if children. So he's saying, if you have all these aspects, then you are the children of God. And if you are the children of God, as in the song we sang tonight, we are heirs of salvation. Uh, J.R. Packer, in writing about adoption, he said adoption shows us five specific things in this, in this section of Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, he said it shows us the greatness of God's love. So our adoption to God shows us how great the love of God is because he didn't adopt us looking for what we would be. He didn't adopt us because of what we could be. 
But he adopted us because that was his pleasure. That's what he wanted to do. So we see the greatness of the love of God toward us. Second of all, we see the glory of the hope of God. So we see what we are gaining. We have this hope in us and the greatness of this hope because it's a hope of adoption. Thirdly, we see the ministry of the Spirit. And we've seen this laid out in the text that we've been over the past couple Sunday nights. The Spirit enables us to mortify the deeds of our body. The Spirit gives us the ability to cry, Abba, Father. Gives us that, that knowledge of our adoption. And then fourthly, he said the adoption shows us the meaning of what many have called gospel holiness. That real true holiness isn't necessarily about standards or conforming to the lordship of God. While those are aspects of it, it's not about that. True holiness is about seeing who we are and reveling in that adoption. True Christ-likeness is us seeing that we have been made the family of God and acting like the family of God. That is that gospel holiness, that gospel obligation that we had talked about in verse number 13 and 14. And then lastly, he said that it clears up any need for assurance. So any doubt in our life, that spirit of adoption, it clears out that doubt. We don't have to, we don't have to wonder if we're really saved because of the way that we fail. We don't have to wonder if we're really saved because we're not as spiritual as the next person, at least in our eyes. We don't have to wonder if we're saved for any of those reasons because the salvation has been started. It's been implemented by God. And if it's been implemented by God, He's not going to back out of it. Legally, He can't back out of it. So those are the things that we have seen kind of as we move through here. But tonight we'll be looking specifically at verse number six, verse number 17. So we'll look at the grounds of our airship, the universality of our airship, the inheritance of our airship, the partnership of our airship, the estates of our airship, and the administration of our airship. And I told Reese that I will do my best. said if he does his best not to get bored, I'll do my best to keep it interesting. And I won't spend a whole lot of time on each of these points. But I do want to kind of break this verse apart and see the aspects of it. So if we were to look at this section of Scripture, at this specific verse, these couple sentences that Paul gives us, he starts out with, and if children. And this is the grounds of our heirship. We are heirs grounded in the fact that we are children. And that's what Paul has said. He said, because you are the children of God, and if children. So the ground of our inheritance, the ground of us being heirs with God, is the fact that we're children. It flows from that sonship, not from any kind of service. We're not heirs if we do something. We're not heirs if we act in a certain way. We're not heirs if we are better Christians than somebody else. We are heirs if we are children. That's the grounds. It's not limited to anything that we do. It's limited to everything that he has done. The only place where we find any kind of limitation in this airship is that it is limited to children. So he didn't say that if you are a good person, you're an heir. And that works both ways. 
We can't base our airship on the fact that we are a good person and we're not going to take away our airship on the fact that we're not a good person. So it is limited in a sense, but at the same time, it isn't. It's not limited to us, it's limited to Him. So that is the grounds of our airship, if children of God. That's how we gain our airship. Secondly, the universality of our airship. He says, if children, then heirs. And the fact of that is, it ties back into the grounds. It means that all are equal in their airship. He said, if you're a child, you're an heir. He didn't say if you're the eldest child, you're an heir. If you've been a child longer, you're an heir. If you've acted more like a child, you're an heir. He said specifically, if you're a child, then you are an heir. The ground is completely level. It reminded me of one of the parables that Jesus gave. The, the Pharisees had came to him and were, were telling him, well, you know, we are Abraham's offspring. We're the children of Abraham. And he gives them a parable, an illustration that they didn't understand, but that Christ will eventually explain to his disciples. He says, if you have a group of people in the morning, they're waiting for a job. A guy comes out and he says, ice. And that's the Jewish, the Jewish day. The Jewish day was 12 hours. They, they started work at 6 a.m. and they ended work at 6 p.m. That was the way that they kind of handled their work day. It wasn't an 8-hour work day. It was a 12-hour work day. So he gives that illustration. There's men waiting out there and they, there's men that come out and they start working at 6 a.m. And he says, I'm going to give you a pence for your day's work. And then he goes back, he needs more laborers, he goes back at 12 o'clock. Or maybe it's 9 o'clock. Anyway, he goes back, we'll just say 12. He goes back, he gets laborers again. He tells those laborers, I'm going to give you one pence for your day's work. He goes back again at 3 o'clock, gets laborers again. He says, I'm going to give you one pence for your day's work. And then he goes back at 5 o'clock, and he gets laborers again. And he tells those laborers, I'm going to give you one pence for your day's work. So the pay is the same. And the guys that were there in the morning, they come to Christ and, and they say, or they come to the master in the parable, and they say, this isn't fair. We've been working all day, and you're giving us one pence. And these guys, they've only been working for an hour, and you're paying them the same thing as you're paying us? That's not, that's not right. And Jesus says, I'm the master. It's my work. I can pay whatever I want to pay. In essence, that's what the parable was saying. And what he was saying to those Pharisees, the Jews had on them, they said, we've been God's children for a long time. We are heirs of God. We're going to get everything. We're going to get all of it. But Jesus was showing to them that there's going to be people that come at the end of his plan, and they're going to be the same heirs as the ones who came at the beginning of his plan. Abraham is no more an heir than I am because we're all heirs in Christ. We're all equal. The pay is the same. Not only is the pay the same, but the love's the same. God doesn't love one of his heirs, one of his sons, any more than he loves another one of his sons. And we'll get into more of why that is the case here in just a minute. But God's love is the same. God didn't love Adam more than he loved Abraham, and God doesn't love Abraham more than he loved Moses, and God doesn't love Moses more than he loved anybody that we can think of. Whatever figure that you can think of in history, 
God didn't love that person. He may have used them in a different way than He uses us. He may use us in a different way than He uses the next person. But the love of God is the same. God's not partial. And that's what we talked about this morning. God is not partial in His faithfulness. He's not partial in His love. His love is the same because they are heirs. And they are heirs in that love of God. And not only that, but the promises of God are the same. If we look over in Hebrews chapter number 6, Hebrews chapter number 6 and verse number 17, it's, it's a relatively well-known, or at least relatively often quoted passage of Scripture. But Hebrews chapter number 6 and verse number 17 starts out, he says, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto who the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, something strong to hold on to, something strong to put our faith in, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But he starts out that section, that section that we read, he said, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise. And that's us. That's what the book of Hebrews was telling us. That it wasn't just Abraham that was an heir to this promise of God. And it wasn't just Moses that was an heir to this promise of God. It wasn't just David that was an heir to this promise of God. But the heir of this promise of God was a specific person. And he promised this on a specific person. He said by two immutable things, that one, that God who could not lie, that he placed it in someone that would be sure and steadfast and that leads us into the next section of Scripture. He says not only, he says, if children, that's the grounds, then heirs, that's the universality. It's, it's based on whoever's a child. They are an heir at the same level as every other heir. Thirdly, we see heirs of whom? Heirs of God. That's the inheritance of our heirship. They're heirs of God. And I won't have us turn to each of these sections of Scripture, but the Bible tells us what this inheritance is. It says that we are heirs of all things in Revelation 21.7. says that we are heirs of salvation in Hebrews 1.14 and in the song we sang. See, these, these people who wrote these hymns, they weren't completely oblivious to what God had said. That's the reason that these hymns carry so much doctrine with them many times. Because they had read the scriptures. They understood that we are heirs of salvation. Thirdly, we are heirs of eternal life. And that's in Titus 3.7. Fourthly, we are heirs of a promise. That's in Hebrews 6.17, the scripture that we just read. We are heirs of grace in this life. From 1 Peter 3, 
chapter number six, or First Peter chapter number three, verse number seven. We are heirs of righteousness. Hebrews eleven, verse number seven. And we are heirs of the kingdom. James two and verse number five. You see, all of these things, they are all put together in a person. These things they belong specifically to God. God is the ruler and owner of all things. God is the ruler and the owner of salvation. We don't we don't do anything to gain salvation. God is the author of salvation. God is the one who gives out eternal life because He is eternal. Only one who is eternal can give out eternal life. He's the God of the promises. He's the one that made the promises. And that's why we read that scripture. He's the one that made the promise. And if He's the one that made the promise, they're His promises. The Bible tells us that He's a God of all grace. It's His grace. We understand that God is completely righteous and holy. It's His righteousness. And everything is all coming into culmination in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What was the very next section of scripture? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a coming kingdom. That's part of our hope, is the kingdom of God. Revelation tells us about that kingdom. The Old Testament tells us about that kingdom. It's a kingdom where God dwells with his people and rules everything. There is no corrupt politicians in that kingdom. There is no people who make bad laws in that kingdom because there is one that rules that kingdom with a rod of iron. And if all of these things are God's, they all belong to Him, then they all are ours because we are heirs of God. If if, if, if my great-grandfather was one of the Rockefellers, then when he passed, I would have been an heir of part of what he had. My family doesn't have a lot for me to be heirs of. I mean, physically speaking. But nevertheless, I'm an heir of what comes from my family. What comes from ultimately from my father. And if God has all of these things, then all of these things are ours because we are heirs of God. And we are heirs because we are children. So we see our inheritance, what we gain from being heirs of God... But this is part of what's going to start tying these things together. So fourthly, we see the partnership of our heirship. So the partnership comes right in the very next section of this verse. He says, heirs, with, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So not only heirs with God, he brings our union with Christ back in to play here. And there's key things that go along with this union that means something very important to us. Because, and I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, but if, using a physical example again, if something were to happen 
and my father had a, a lot of inheritance to give me, but something were to happen, and I wasn't able to gain that inheritance because I couldn't show proof of who I was, then I would have to forfeit that inheritance. But what Paul's telling us here is one of the reasons that we, he writes this specifically is he's saying in order for us to lose all of this inheritance that he's talked about all through Scripture, Christ would have to lose it too. So not only are we children of God and heirs of God, but we're joint heirs. We're, we're bound together with Christ. If we lose our inheritance, Christ loses his inheritance. And he can't do that. Christ can't lose his inheritance. The beauty in this, and this is something that Charles Spurgeon said, he said, if Satan were to cast any kind of accusation toward us, he must cast it first to Christ. He was saying that if Satan's going to accuse us, He's accusing Christ by accusing us. Because we're joint together with Christ. If anybody says, no, you, you, no, you can't be an heir of this. You have no claim to this heirship. Then they are saying that Christ has no claim to that heirship. Those ones whom he has paid for with his blood are bound together with him. It's not only... Can we not lose it unless he loses it? But let's, let's run that example again. Let's say that our father has a huge inheritance and he spends everything before he passes that inheritance on. Well, in order for us to get nothing from this inheritance, guess who else gets nothing? Jesus Christ. Because we are joint heirs with him. What Christ has done is he has came and he has identified himself with us. He came to dwell among his people. That's what the, the prophet Isaiah said and what Gabriel would later on echo to Mary was that he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the gospel. Christ came and identified himself with man. Hebrews chapter number 2 and Hebrews chapter number 4 explain why he did that. Because in order for him to redeem us, he had to identify himself with us. And even our section of scripture says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ is the man that has identified himself with humanity and while retaining his divinity. He is God and he is man 100%. And that's why that doctrine is so important. If he's not 100% God and 100% man, then we have no inheritance. Because he's given up his inheritance if he's not 100% both. But not only has he identified himself with us, as children, we identify ourselves with him. That's part of what we do on a daily basis. Part of what we even looked at Wednesday night is we're looking at Christ so that we become like Christ. This identity is part of what gets carried on through our life. The whole reason that we live the way we do, 
the whole reason that we learn the things that we do, the whole reason that we meet together corporately, the whole reason that we take the Scriptures and hold them in such high esteem is because we want to be like the one who has identified with us. Our goal as Christians is to identify with Him. That's what, that's what baptism is a whole picture of. Baptism is a picture of what He has done for us. And Him identifying Himself with us, He, was, he died for us because He identified with him, Himself with us. He was buried and raised again. And in Romans chapter number 6, Paul said, we identify with Him in the same way that He identified with us. In that baptism, we are laying or showing forth the laying down of our old man in Christ and the resurrection of our new man to walk in newness of life. So Christ has identified with us in order that we may identify with Him. And if we are identifying with Him, we are coming more like Him. But that's what we gain in that, in that joint airship. That being joined together with Christ means unless Christ is taken down from the throne then our inheritance stands. Unless Christ is nullified, unless Christ is recalled for our political system, then we have an inheritance. We have something that's sure, and that's what that verse in Hebrew said. He said we have an anchor that is steadfast and sure. He didn't just stop at steadfast. And he didn't just say sure. He said it's steadfast and sure. Not only is it not going anywhere, it's not moving anywhere, but it's big enough for you to put your hope in. It's big enough to take care of all of the heirs of God. Christ isn't big enough just to take care of some of the children. And he leaves some of the children out here where they don't gain the heirship. They're not joined together with him. But if we are saved, we are joined together with Christ. And that's what gives us the hope of the airship that we have with God. So as we kind of continue down through this, so we have this partnership with Christ where it basically instills the security of that inheritance. But as we move down, he says, not only are we joint heirs with Christ, but he, he kind of changes gears just a little bit to kind of explain what he means by that. So there's a twofold aspect of what this joint heirship with Christ means. He says, if so be that we suffer with him. And one of the things that I was reading this week was by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon actually called this little section of scripture, I guess these couple words, he called them the black portion of our inheritance. He said there's things that we gain in our inheritance and our joint heirship with Christ that aren't going to look good from our perspective. They're not going to seem like good things on our end. But that they are good things and they are going to produce good things. There's two of these things that we see mentioned in Scripture. Number one, we see persecution or tribulation. And I know most of our minds probably goes to what Jesus said. He said, if they hated me, guess what? They're going to hate you. He said, in this world, you are going to have tribulation. 
But he goes on to say, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Paul himself, he said that he was willing and his desire was to be joint with Christ in that suffering. He said, I want to be joined together. I want to have that fellowship of the suffering of Christ. See, part of our inheritance is that tribulation. It is that persecution. That's part of what we're gaining when we, we see and we obtain that union with Christ. When we understand whose we are, we see that part of that inheritance. We see that persecution. If we are going to identify with Christ, then if Christ was persecuted, that means that by default we are going to be persecuted too. We aren't going to be persecuted to the extent that he was. And the fact that we may, we may, and I don't, I don't necessarily foresee this in our lives, but there are people, and it may come to the point where one may end up giving their life for Christ. That is part of their inheritance, part of their persecution, part of what they've been given is to give their life, physically speaking, for Christ. But that person still doesn't have to spend any time under the wrath of God. So we are taking part in that persecution that Christ, that, that hatred that people had for Christ, we're taking part in that. And Paul is telling us, if we are going to take part in that, we are going to be able to take part in that joyfully. Reading through church history, there were a lot of people in the first couple centuries that ended up giving their lives for the cause of Christ. They gave their lives because they were Christians. But the ironic thing, and I don't even know if ironic is the right word, the amazing thing is that if you read the accounts of all of these people, they were happy to be martyred. They were excited almost. You read all of these accounts, even into the past couple hundred years, you read of these people who were joyfully going to be martyred. They were singing. They were quoting scripture. They were happy. There was one man that in, in the, the stuff that I've been posting on Facebook and some other places about church history, because he was being so loud about who he was and what he was getting ready to come into, they put a brass ball in his mouth so he would be quiet. Because he knew that he was gaining that fellowship with Christ. There's one account specifically, and I won't, I won't spend a lot of time here, but there was one account specifically that just floored me. There was a group, and the way that the Romans would handle persecution, and I may have even talked about this before, but the way that, that the Romans did persecution, they didn't just go out and try and blanket persecute every single person out there. They would go and they would target specifically new converts who were prominent, or they would target the leaders in the church. That's the reason they would jail some Christians and allow other Christians to bring them food and clothing and the things that they needed. And that is, just as a side note, that's what John is saying in 1 John when he says, or maybe James, that says that if we see a brother in need and we hold up our, our, our bowels of compassion, he said if, if you see somebody who needs food and you hold it up, how dwelt the love of God in you? That's who he was writing to. He was writing to people He's saying if these men have been jailed or these women have been jailed and they are possibly facing martyrdom, 
If you hold your bowels of compassion to them, if you're not willing to identify with them, then you obviously are not willing to identify with Christ. But what, one, what this one specific story told of, there was, a, there was a lady, she was a prominent lady in culture, in the culture of that town she was in. She converted. And what they would do is they would wait for 30 days. They would disciple those people for 30 days before they baptized them because they wanted to make sure that whoever it was knew exactly what they were getting into before they baptized them as a picture of their identification with Christianity. And we still see this in the Middle East especially. Even where Lindsay's parents are in Romania and Bulgaria, when you're baptized, you're disowned by your family. Because that is the it's not just the profession of Christ. When you're baptized, that is the identification that you're saying, this is who I am. So they would wait 30 days and they would baptize. Well, the, the Romans, they were waiting there after that baptismal service happened. And they took her, and they took a couple of other people they took them captive and they put them in prison. Well, part of the deacon's job in that time period, they were the ones who would take the things to the people. So the part of the way that deacon served the body of Christ was by taking food and clothing and the things those people who were jailed needed to them. So the church would get these things up, they would, they would prepare this food, they would bring this clothing in, and then the deacons of the church would take that stuff out to those who were being persecuted. The identification and that, and that fellowship and suffering was so strong for these people that each of these six people in this story wanted and were desiring martyrdom. Not that they just wanted to die, but they saw it as such an honor to be able to have that fellowship in, even in death with Christ. In that specific story, and again, I won't, I won't, I won't let try. I'm trying not to labor too long in that in that little section. But that deacon who was coming to them right before they were to be martyred, he asked. He said he asked the doors. He said, "Can I go with them?" He was so connected to the body of Christ that he didn't want to allow them to go into that without him. And it wasn't something that he was being selfish. He was saying that, the, I'm, he said, I'm supposed to serve these people. They're part of my flock. These are the people that I'm accountable for. And because he saw that body, that union with Christ, and that union with other believers so strongly, he didn't want to allow them to go through something that he was not going to go through with them. But this, is, this theme is the same, and that's my point. This theme of persecution and fellowship in suffering started with Paul, on through Peter, and all throughout church history. No matter where you read, you read of people who were joyful in the fact that they were suffering with Christ. And it was for a reason. It wasn't, again, it wasn't they were just happy to die, but they understood this was a privilege of their inheritance. They were joint heirs with Christ. No matter where that took them in persecution and tribulation, they were happy to be joint with Christ. They were happy to be fellowship in that suffering with Christ because they knew that was part of the inheritance that they had been given. And if we understand the part of our inheritance that we've been given, that we've been joined with Christ, that's going to bring along with it suffering in some way, shape, or form. We may not suffer physically. 
But there's going to be some type of persecution, some type of tribulation that comes upon us because of who we have identified with. We can't identify with him and not take part in his suffering. And that's what Paul's saying. He said, this is a privilege of your inheritance. This may be part of your sanctification. This may be part of the plan of God has for you, but this is a privilege that you've been given to identify with Christ in his suffering. And then secondly, we see that we identify with Christ in temptation. Again, I believe it was James that said that there is no one who is tempted in a way that Christ wasn't tempted. He was tempted in all manners, like we are. He is our high priest that is tempted in that way. But we are heirs with him in that temptation. So if Christ was tempted, and we are heirs with him, and we are joint with him, we have that union with him, then it just bears out that we're going to be tempted too. And honestly, we're going to be tempted in ways and more often and stronger than most people living in the world will be. I think Brother Ricky or Brother Charles, maybe we've been talking about that some this morning. It's not Satan running after people in the world to tempt them. There, are, there may be people in the world that are tempted to do things and they do pursue those things. But that temptation is something that's ha- that it's no kind of fight. It's just, it's just put up. Here it is. It's displayed. But in Scriptures we see Christ, and I know this was talked about this morning, we see Christ, He goes into the wilderness and He didn't go to where the devil was. The devil came to where He was. The devil was coming after Him. And that's part of our inheritance. Satan is going to come after us with temptations. That's that's part of our union. If Christ was tempted and we're heirs with Him, then that's going to be part of being unified with Him. That's going to be part of being part of Christ. Part of our inheritance is the same temptations that Christ had. Christ was tempted in every way so that we know that whatever way we're tempted, we are part of what He has done. We're part of what He has gained in His inheritance. He unified Himself with us, and He gained temptation and persecution by unifying Himself with us. So if we're going to unify ourselves with Him, then we're going to gain persecution and temptation by our unification with Christ. But there's 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 one blessed word in this verse. It says that if so be... That we suffer with Him. You see, this isn't something that we're doing alone. Because He has unified with Himself with us, He, he as, as inheritance of His unification with us, has gained persecution and temptation. Again, we are gaining with our union with Him. But it's with. We're not suffering alone. We're not being persecuted alone. We're not going to go through tribulation in this life alone. We're not going to go through temptations alone. Because all of this suffering is with Him. He went through these things so that we could go through these things with Him. He didn't leave us alone. He didn't ascend to heaven. He he told the disciples, he said, 
I'm going away, but I'm sending another comforter. And I know we've talked about this Wednesday. Bridge Rich has talked about this many times. That another is the same kind. He said, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. You're not going to go through anything that you go through along because you have the Spirit of God. And that's part of our that's part of us being children. That's what Paul said in the verse right above. That we have the spirit of adoption if we are children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. And if we are heirs, then we're going to suffer because we're heirs. We have that same inheritance. We have that same black portion of our inheritance. But we're not doing these things by ourselves. We're with Christ. He's with us. Every temptation, He makes a way of escape because He has gone through those things already. He's going through things with us. And then lastly, we not only do we have the estates or the parts of our airship, but we see the administration of our airship. And that we find in the last section of this verse. He said that if we suffer with Him, that we may also be also glorified together. The administration or the gaining or where we see this happen, where we're going to see the culmination of our inheritance. We're going to see everything that God has given to us and for us and in us through the person of Christ. We see all that happen because we are going to be glorified together. Specifically, Paul says, we may also. So we are going through these things, the bad things, with Christ. But we... May also. It's a package deal. It's all of us, and it's also. If Christ was glorified, then all of us are going to be glorified with Him. There is no suffering without glorification. There is no cross that does not include a crown. There is no temptation that doesn't without it come a victory. Every part of that black is going to be outweighed by the good, by that glorification. It's no wonder that Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians, or he wrote to the Philippians, I'm sorry, it was Philippians chapter number 1. He said, to live is Christ. To To die is gain. And there's another section of Scripture, I believe in Hebrews chapter number 10, where it says that there is all of our suffering is gathering up to an eternal weight of glory. Basically, and it took me a long time to try and figure out what Paul was trying to say there, but it was really quite simple. Paul's saying that every little piece of suffering, every little piece of persecution, every little drop of temptation is laying up a weight. But when it's weighed out, that glorification is going to far outweigh the suffering, the persecution, the temptation. Everything that we go through in this life is not going to be a drop in the bucket to the glorification that we have been promised in Christ. John Newton told a story, and I'll I'll close with this, but John Newton told a story. He said there was a man who had inherited a lot of land, a big piece of property, and inherited a lot of money along with it. 
and he was headed to claim his inheritance. And a piece broke off of his wagon. A little spoke broke off, broke off of the wheel of the wagon. He just becomes irate, gets off of the wagon, and he's just screaming, my wagon, my wagon. Everybody who comes by, all he's doing is he's hollering, he's complaining about his wagon, the spoke that came off of his wagon. He's all tore up about it. And what John Newton was saying, he said it, he said it, didn't, he just said it doesn't make sense for a man who has gained such a large inheritance to be so tore up over him breaking the piece off of his wagon. It just doesn't, it's not logical. It doesn't make sense. He's, he's gained all this stuff and he's on his way to get it, but all he can do is focus on and complain about something that happened on his wagon. And what, what Newton was saying, and he was talking about in reference to this verse, he said that all the suffering in this life, it doesn't even compare. It doesn't come close. And when we spend all of our time complaining and fussing about the temptations that we go through or the persecutions that we have, it's no different than us telling everybody how bad our poor wagon is when we've been given an estate. And, and even more so for us, we've been given all these things that are God's. We've been given this huge inheritance, a kingdom, all things, all the promises, all the riches, Everything that is Christ's is ours. And not only that, but Christ is our portion. In the Old Testament, the Levites, they weren't given land. They were told, the Lord is your portion. They said, the Lord is enough for y'all. Y'all don't even need any land because you have the Lord. But we've been given the Lord and land. We've been given everything. And if we understand that and we come to our sonship with that thought, then it makes all the things in this world seem dim. All the, the temptations that we go through, all the persecutions that we go through, it dims those things because we understand what we're going to, what all these things are accomplishing. Number one, they're a union with our fellow heir. They're a union with that partner that we have in this life. But number two, they are leading us to where we're going. They're taking us. And the more suffering that we have here, the greater our inheritance is going to be. The more persecution that we go through here, the greater our inheritance is going to seem. And that's the reason that those people throughout church history didn't live lives like we live. We, we look at the news and we think we're being persecuted because we see something on the news. Because we've been given very, very easy lives. I think I told Brother Charles, we, I heard a guy talking, he said that he said there's a man in the recliner drinking cold iced tea, watching a flat screen TV. He sees something on the news, he said, boy, we're under persecution, the Lord's coming back. But that's not the way that our forefathers thought by any stretch of the imagination. They saw everything that they were going through as just a little part of what they were going to have because of their union with Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. Ultimately, when we come down to the end of this section, Paul's saying that you've been given all these things even in your physical life, in those 70 plus years that you may live. You've been given these things. You've been given a spirit of adoption. You've been given the ability to cry, Father. 
You've been given power to mortify the deeds of that old body that you're carrying around. But even in all of these things, in all of that, in all the suffering, everything that we've been given here, we have something very, very much greater that we're heading toward. And that's what the next sections of Scripture will be talking about. We'll be anticipating the glory that is to come. And if we can ever get to the point, and I'm, I'm talking to myself just as much as I'm talking to anybody else, but if we can ever get to the point that we see the Christian life in perspective, it'll change the things that we complain about. It'll change the things that we, that we stress out over. It'll change just the way that we view our lives because we see it as part of our inheritance with Christ and we see it as what is leading us to our glorification. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an opportunity